Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series. We're continuing along in the Bible study entitled Out of Bondage into Abundance. And if you are listening on the internet, we've had some problems with the broadcast and we're trying to figure out what's happening, but apparently part of the uh, broadcast has been cut off. So uh, we're trying to monitor that and we apologize for any problems, but uh, if it continues, we'll have to record these uh, another way and put them onto our church website. The notes for the first three parts of this study should be up on our website now at new-life-ministries.org. And again, we do record each one of these sessions, and those are also placed up there. So we are moving on tonight into part three, entitled Crossing the Red Sea. And... At the very beginning of this whole study, we mentioned that the process of Israel coming out of Egypt and moving into Canaan, the promised land, is much more than a history lesson. It's actually a picture that the Holy Spirit will use to enlighten us to the whole journey of salvation just as they came out of bondage in Egypt and moved into a land flowing with milk and honey, so God wants to take us out of the bondage of sin, out of darkness, into his marvelous light, into an abundant life, and of course, ultimately, into heaven itself, where he has a glorious inheritance prepared for each and every one of us. Furthermore, we mentioned that there were three initial steps to Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. We just finished the first step. That was the Passover. And that was not the end of their deliverance. That was the first of three parts. And I think it's important to point out again tonight that although... The Passover brought about a great deliverance. In one single night, after 400 years of slavery, every single Israelite was set free. It was a great miracle. However, as we're going to see tonight, their deliverance, their salvation, was still not complete. And what we're going to find tonight is, although they came out of Egypt... Egypt was now coming after them. And when they come to the shore of the Red Sea, they actually need a second deliverance, a second uh, phase, if you will, in their salvation experience. And we have referred to this uh, several times already, but it's important to repeat. In John 3, verses 3 to 5, Jesus makes reference to three different experiences. He talks about being born again, then he refers to being born of water, and born of the Spirit. And we are taking these as three separate and distinct experiences that correspond to these three separate 
steps or phases to Israel's coming out of Egypt. As I mentioned, we've just completed the first phase or the first aspect. That was the celebration of the Passover. It was through the blood of the Lamb that they were brought out of Egypt. The firstborn of all of the Egyptians were put to death in that Passover night, and the Israelites all came out as free men, free women, that very night by the power of the blood of the Lamb. We studied all of that in Exodus 12. In Exodus 13 and 14, we read the next step in that process of them being completely delivered from Egypt. It's not complete yet. Because in Exodus 13 and 14, we find now that Pharaoh changes his mind, he gets all of his armies together, and he comes after the Israelites. So although the blood of the Passover lamb had broken Pharaoh's yoke of slavery over the Israelites, there's now a different problem. And Israel, when they come to the Red Sea, they need another experience of deliverance or salvation. And if you read through the Old Testament, their experience at the Red Sea is mentioned numerous times throughout the Old Testament, and it's even mentioned several times in the New Testament, one of which we're going to be referring to in a minute. But coming back to the Passover for just a second, through the blood of the Passover lamb, the chief of Egypt's strength was smitten. We saw that the firstborn represents the chief of strength. So the chief of Egypt's strength was broken that night through the blood of the lamb. However, as I just mentioned, Pharaoh and his armies are now pursuing the Israelites to drag them back into slavery and servitude. And in the natural, Israel has no defense against Pharaoh and his armies. They could have easily taken them captive again, dragged them all back into Egypt, and maybe had another 400 years of slavery. And when we come to Exodus 13 and 14, Israel's journey has suddenly come to a halt. They're not going anywhere. They're incapable of going any further in their journey without another supernatural intervention from God. God's people, once again, needed to, and I'm quoting from what we're going to be reading, they needed to see the salvation of the Lord in the waters of the Red Sea. And this is an experience which, oddly, the Apostle Paul refers to in the New Testament as a baptism. And we studied these verses a while back, but I want to read them again from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4. And Paul writes, 
I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea, obviously referring to the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. This is a clear example of what we've been talking about, how every detail of the Old Testament history of Israel coming out of Egypt, passing through the Red Sea, coming to Mount Sinai, journeying through the wilderness, and finally crossing the River Jordan into the Promised Land. Every detail of that story literally happened. It's not a fable. This is real history. However, there's also a spiritual story that is being told. Notice, for instance, Paul says the rock that provided them drink in the wilderness, you can read about that in Exodus 17, that rock, he says, was actually a spiritual rock. And that spiritual rock was Christ. Well, you won't find that in Exodus 17. You need the Holy Spirit to enlighten you and to give you revelation that that rock in the Old Testament was really a foreshadowing of the true rock, which is Jesus Christ. Likewise, the cloud and the sea, Paul refers to as a baptism. He says they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The word baptism, most of you have studied, it literally means to be completely immersed. You can be immersed in water, you can be immersed in the Holy Spirit. There are two different baptisms that are mentioned in the New Testament. Baptism simply means to be completely covered over, completely immersed, or, if you will, completely submerged. And in the case of the Red Sea, it's very fascinating that Paul chooses this word, baptism, to refer to the experience that Israel had in passing through those waters of the Red Sea. Because two different things happened at the Red Sea. The Israelites passed through the Red Sea, and they came out on the other side alive and well. Pharaoh and his armies also passed through the Red Sea, and they were all drowned. They all died in the waters of the Red Sea. So there are two different things happening all at once in their experience of the Red Sea. And hopefully we're going to see tonight that what happened to Israel in the waters of the Red Sea is actually a picture of our second experience in our salvation journey. The first one, of course, is we're saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of the Passover lamb breaks the strength, 
the stronghold of sin over our lives, and we are set free. But we're not totally free yet, and there's a second experience that God has graciously provided for every believer, and that is water baptism. And I find that water baptism is not very well understood by Christians. And apparently Paul knew that too, and he devoted an entire chapter in the book of Romans, which we're going to refer to later on, Romans chapter 6. And he's writing to believers who had already been baptized, but he's now trying to broaden their understanding of what that experience in water baptism really signifies. More about that later. Let's, first of all, look at what happened to the Israelites just as they come out of Egypt on that Passover night. In the very next chapter, Exodus 13, we pick up the story from verse 17. Exodus chapter 13, let's read from verse 17 down to 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. That's interesting. There was a shorter route, but God deliberately did not lead them on that shorter route. And here's his reason. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear on oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Sukkot, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So far, so good. But continuing right along into chapter 14, let's look at the first 14 verses here, and we're going to take this line by line. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near pi Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think, now this is critical, notice this, Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. 
but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Now, just pause here for a second. I want you to notice that God is very deliberate in everything that he's doing here. This is not confusion. This is not a situation that's out of control. Quite the contrary, God is calling the shots. God has scripted the whole play here. Move by move, step by step, God knows what he's doing. And here again, we see this expression that we saw quite often in the earlier chapters of Exodus. Pharaoh's heart is again being hardened. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them. Remember, the night of the Passover, they were so devastated, they were begging Moses and the Israelites to get out of Egypt. Get out of here, or we're all going to die. Now Pharaoh's heart and mind change back, and he says, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready, and took his army with him. He took six hundred of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. This is serious business. Pharaoh is really determined to capture every last one of these slaves, and bring them back into bondage. Verse 8, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. Verse 9, The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them, as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. Let me read verse 9 again. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them. So, this isn't looking good. They're hemmed in now. Pharaoh has caught up with them, and he is very well armed. Verse 10. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, 
Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now, God knows human nature. He knew these Israelites very well. And that's why, if you go back to where we started off in chapter 13, this is why the Lord deliberately led them on the road through the Philistine country. It's, it says, no, he did not lead them through that road, even though that was the shorter route, and here's the reason why. God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. We want to go back to Egypt. We were better off in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here to die in the desert? Now, let's just make a couple of points here before we go any further. First of all, God deliberately engineered this whole situation. This could have been avoided. God could have left Pharaoh alone. He could have taken them on a short route and gotten them right far, far away from Egypt. But instead, he deliberately leads them to the shore of the Red Sea, stirs up Pharaoh to come after them, and now they're in a very bad situation. They're trapped at the Red Sea. Pharaoh is really mad, and he's caught up with them. He and his armies have now overtaken the Israelites. Let me remind you of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 again. Romans 9, verses 17 and 18. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. You know, I love the words of that song we've been singing for some time in our church. We can trust our God He knows what he's doing. A lot of times, it doesn't seem like God knows what he's doing, at least from our perspective. But God was very deliberately setting this whole situation up, and let me again refer to verse 4 in Exodus 14. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God is setting up a situation where he's going to do something so awesome, it's going to bring him great glory. And he's going to reveal himself not only to the Egyptians and the Israelites, but in all of the earth. When Paul quotes these verses in Romans 9, reading again, I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed 
in all the earth. So, God is setting up something here at the Red Sea that is going to bring great glory to his name and he's going to display his power in a mighty way for all the earth to see. So, the children of Israel are terrified. They're all backsliding. They all want to go back to Egypt. Pharaoh has caught up to them. It seems like a hopeless situation. How are they possibly going to get out of this one? God's people had been brought out of Egypt, but now Egypt has come after them. A whole different situation. The blood of the Lamb did what it was supposed to do in Egypt, but now we have a whole different problem. Egypt has caught up with them out in the wilderness. In a similar way, you and I, as believers, we are saved by faith when we put our trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. Just simply knowing that Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God, sacrificed on Calvary, shed His blood for my sins, that is enough to set every one of us free from the bondage of sin. Faith in the blood of Christ alone sets us free from the power of sin. However, we have a second problem. And this is what Paul teaches about in Romans 6, and we'll get there eventually, when he teaches the Romans about water baptism. There's something called the old self, or the old man, that has to be dealt with, and is only dealt with at the time of water baptism. And just as the Israelites had been set free from Egypt through the blood of the Lamb, so the believer is set free from the yoke of slavery to sin through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. But, Israel has now come to a place where they cannot go forward in their walk. They can't go any further. They've literally come to a stopping point where Pharaoh and Egypt has come after them and wants to drag them back into slavery. And the same thing happens to you and me, and to every man, woman, and child, when they put their faith in Jesus Christ, there's a glorious salvation experience. It's called being born again. But, very quickly and very soon thereafter, we find a power wanting to drag us back into our old life. It's called our old self or our old man. And we'll learn more about this in a little bit in Romans chapter 6. That old self, that old nature of sin, is still inside of us. And it needs to be dead, and it needs to be buried, just as Pharaoh and his armies needed to be put to death. They needed to be drowned, or as Paul says, 
baptized, literally submerged in the waters of the Red Sea. And we'll find those exact words are used by Paul in Romans 6 when he talks about New Testament water baptism. It's actually a burial of the old self. All right, more about that a little bit later. Let's come back to the Israelites and our story, picking it up in Exodus 14 again from verse 13 onwards. Remember, they've now come to a stopping place. They're terrified. They're wanting to go back to Egypt. Pharaoh has pursued them, overtaken them, and it doesn't seem like there's any hope for the Israelites. Exodus 14, 13. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The King James and a lot of the other translations uh, use the word salvation, which is a perfectly good translation. It's the word Yeshua, which is normally translated salvation or can also be deliverance. Stand firm and see the salvation the Lord will bring you today. Those are very important words. This is the experience they need to have at the Red Sea. Stand firm. Be still. You're not going to need to do anything. Just stand still and watch and see the salvation the Lord will bring you today. And as we read through the rest of this story, I want you to be noticing the Israelites did nothing at all. God did everything for them. He fought for them. He delivered them. He saved them that day. And that's exactly what he's telling them to do. Just stand still and watch me. See the salvation the Lord will bring you today. And these are God's words. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Very important. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. So they're going to see the salvation of the Lord. They're going to see something happen to the Egyptians. And then God promises them, you're never going to see them again. Verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. So almost in one breath, God tells them, Stand still, and then move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, to divide the water, so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory. There it is again. I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know 
that I am the Lord, when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Just pause here for a minute. Remember, we were told earlier, the Lord is going to fight for you. And there's some real good news in these verses that we just read, and they apply just as much to you and me as they do to Israel many, many years ago when they were in this situation. There are enemies that would like to kill us, destroy us, that would like to ruin us. There are enemies that would like to drag us back into the bondage of sin. But there is someone between the enemies and you. Notice that. God is in the middle between the Egyptians and the Israelites, and he is there with his pillar of cloud. And here's something very interesting. One side of the cloud is bringing darkness. The other side is bringing light. Now that's not possible in the natural. This is a supernatural event from start to finish. So, verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind. Notice, God is doing everything. Israelites are doing nothing. The Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. Here again, Israelites are doing nothing. God is fighting their battles. He threw the Egyptian army into confusion. And I like verse 25. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. That was very wise, but it was a little bit too late. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, (coughs) so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, 
and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered, notice that word, covered the chariots and horsemen. Thus, Paul's usage of the word baptized. They were submerged, completely covered by the water. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Verse 30. That day the Lord saved Israel. Notice those words. That day the Lord saved Israel. Well, I thought they were already saved by the Passover lamb. Yes. And, you know, I always get this question when when I teach this. Uh, Inevitably, somebody will say, but I thought I was already saved. You're trying to tell me I'm not saved yet? Well, there are different phases to our salvation. Paul says in another place, we were saved, we are saved, and we're still being saved. In other words, it's not complete yet. There are different phases to this whole journey, this whole process. Yes, the Israelites were saved by the blood of the Lamb. That was the first step. They've now come to the second step. They need to be saved from Pharaoh and his armies. And verse 30 is very clear. That day, not the previous night, or two nights, or three nights before, that day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. It's a totally different kind of a deliverance or salvation. The first one, it smote the firstborn of Egypt, and it enabled the Israelites to come out as free men and free women. This salvation actually puts Egypt to death, all of the Egyptians. And notice again those words, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through on dry ground. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And the next phrase is important. We're going to come back and look at this. And Israel saw. Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. (coughs) They were told to stand still and see the salvation of God. But they were also told, you're going to see something happen to the Egyptians, and you're not going to see them anymore after this. They saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed, let me read that again, when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, notice they were terrified when they saw Pharaoh coming, now they're fearing the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant.
Israel simply had to stand still in faith and watch. Observe God's great power at work. Watch God fighting for them, giving them a mighty deliverance, salvation, and victory that day. And let me recap what we've just read to highlight the fact. Everything that happened in the Red Sea, God did. The Israelites did nothing. There was absolutely nothing that they could say, look what we did. Pat themselves on the back. No. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Let's make a quick list here. It was God who divided the waters. It was God who confused the Egyptians with darkness while he gave light to the Israelites. It was God who fought against the Egyptian army and even took off the wheels from their chariots. I like that. You can't go very fast when all your wheels are off. Slowed them down, confused them, put them all into a panic. It was God who caused the waters to flow back and drown all of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. And most importantly, it was God who, and I'm quoting again, saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians. So, without any question or doubt, Israel was again saved in the waters of the Red Sea. They were saved by the blood of the Lamb while still in Egypt. They're saved again in the waters of the Red Sea. And just as Pharaoh and his armies had to be buried in the waters of the Red Sea, notice, God designed this whole situation because he knew it wasn't enough to bring Israel out of Egypt. Pharaoh and his armies needed to be put to death they needed to be buried. And just a little side note, and I think we're going to see this in Exodus 15, when we look at their song of praise after the mighty deliverance God gave them in the Red Sea. But this gives us a little bit of an insight into just how God views His enemies, and by extension, God's people's enemies. It would seem that perhaps for 400 years, God was silent. He wasn't answering their prayers. He wasn't concerned about them. He just let them go on and on and on in their cruel bondage and oppression and suffering in Egypt. But no, we saw in Exodus 2 and 3, when God finally appears to Moses at the red bush, He's well aware of everything that's going on. He says, I have seen their suffering. I have seen their affliction. And I am coming down now, and I'm going to deliver them out of that bondage. Sometimes it seems like God is slow, but he's never late. He's always right on time with his deliverance. And although it seemed like God wasn't doing a whole lot, for those 400 years that they were in bondage, 
In one single day he brought them out through the blood of the Lamb, and in another single day he destroyed Pharaoh and all of his armies in the waters of the Red Sea. So, just as Pharaoh and his armies had to be buried in the Red Sea, so God has designed water baptism to be a burial of the old self. And it's an integral part of every believer's salvation. That's not in any way to take away from the salvation that came through the blood of the Lamb. Yes, they were set free by the blood of the Lamb. Yes, you and I have been set free through the blood of Jesus Christ. But let me read to you a number of New Testament passages right now, highlighting the importance of water baptism. Water baptism is an integral part of New Testament salvation. And I think just these few passages will show that. Mark chapter 16 and verse 16. These are the words of Jesus. After his resurrection, he's about to ascend back into heaven. He's about to give his great commission to the disciples. But he first makes a very important point. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And again, I always get this question. Are you trying to say... If I believe in Jesus Christ and don't take water baptism, I'm going to hell. Well, that's not exactly what Jesus is saying. What he is saying, if you really believe and you're baptized, seems like that's a natural outflow of our faith. If you believe, you're going to be baptized. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. We're going to talk more about this a little later on. Faith is an important part, not only in our salvation from the yoke of slavery to sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Yes, we need faith to keep the Passover. We also need faith when we come to the Red Sea. We need faith in water baptism that there is yet another phase, another aspect to our deliverance that is about to unfold. Another important passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. In this case, Peter is referring to the floodwaters in the days of Noah, and he connects that with water baptism. He says, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, in the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now that's an interesting expression. Eight people were saved through water. The water destroyed all of the wickedness, it destroyed all of the sinful people in the world, the same water is what caused the ark to rise 
and to float and to save Noah and his family members. Now notice how Peter applies this. Eight in all were saved through water, and this water, the water that flooded the earth in Noah's day, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here again, the apostles were not ashamed to associate water baptism with salvation. It's an integral part of New Testament salvation. Just as the water, in a sense, saved Noah and his family and destroyed all of the sinfulness in the world, so water baptism saves us, and we'll learn a little later now in Romans 6, it buries that old self, that old sinful part of us that needs to be buried. All right? Another important passage, Acts 2, verses 37 to 41, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, Peter preached and 3,000 people got saved. They were deeply moved by Peter's message, and obviously the Holy Spirit was working in their hearts. And picking it up in verse 37, Acts 2, verse 37, when the people heard this, heard Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? It's a good question. What shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. First two things out of his mouth. Repent and be baptized. What are we supposed to do? Repent and take baptism. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Wait a minute. I need to be baptized to have my sins forgiven? Well, Peter said, you want to know what you need to do? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Obviously, you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If he has commanded you to take baptism, do it. What shall we do? Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves. Notice those words, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Verse 41, those who accepted his message were what? Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. You know, we'll see a little bit later on here 
that water baptism is one of the first steps of obedience that you and I take as new believers in Christ. We repent. That's an act of turning away from our old sinful life. We give up our old ways. And then the very first positive thing we do is be baptized. Those who accepted his message were baptized. The very first thing they did was take baptism. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Interesting. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Most Bible teachers recognize what he's referring to there. The washing of regeneration is that whole experience of repentance culminating in water baptism. What are we supposed to do? Repent and be baptized. It's a washing of regeneration. Remember in John 3, Jesus said, if you're born again, you can see the kingdom of heaven. But if you want to enter, you need two other experiences. You must be born of water and of the Spirit. Born represents the beginning of a new life. It's a new experience. And there's actually a birth that takes place inside of us at the time of water baptism. It's called the washing of regeneration. Now, very quickly, um, let me read two more passages, and then we're going to close for tonight and pick it up right here next time. In Romans 6, if you have time this week, read the entire sixth chapter of Romans, and you'll find Paul is writing to believers who have already taken water baptism, but he's now taking them a little deeper into the significance of that step of obedience that they had taken. Romans 6, starting with verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized, past tense, already been baptized, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also 
be united with him in his resurrection. And here's the most important part. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Just as there needed to be a burial in the Red Sea, Pharaoh and all of his chariots, all of his armies, needed to be put to death, drowned, and if you will, buried in the waters. So Paul says, all of us who have taken baptism, we were buried with Christ through baptism into death. And we learn that death is actually the secret. It's the key to complete and total freedom from sin. Verse 7, anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So, as they pass through on dry land to the other shore of the Red Sea, the Israelites looked back, They saw Pharaoh and all of his armies dead on the shore. They knew now, without any doubt, we are free. We're never going to be slaves in Egypt again. In baptism, the believer dies to the world and the world is crucified to the believer. It's a two-way operation. And Paul explains this in another verse, and we'll stop here. Galatians 6 and verse 14. Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Notice it's a two-way death or crucifixion. The world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the world. There's no longer any attraction between the two. And Likewise, in the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his armies were dead. Israel passed through alive on dry ground, And they're now embarking on a whole new walk. They don't have to worry about Egypt coming after them anymore. And we'll pick it up here next time and look a little bit further into what actually happens to the New Testament believer in water baptism. He doesn't just get wet. There's an operation of God. Something powerful takes place, just as something powerful took place at the Red Sea. Remember, God was displaying His great power there, both for the Egyptians as well as the Israelites to see. Likewise, there's a powerful operation of God in water baptism that brings about a glorious freedom and liberty in our lives from the bondage of sin. Let's stop there and we'll continue next time. Let's close in prayer. 
Father, we thank you for the glorious deliverance that the blood of the Passover lamb brings into each one of our lives. We thank you, O God, for the marvelous experience of being born again. When we're born again, Lord, you said we can see the kingdom. But God, we want to do more than see the kingdom. We want to enter the kingdom. And you said we must be born of water and born of the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. And Lord, just as Israel needed to be saved through water, so you have designed that in the waters of baptism there is a glorious deliverance from the old man, the old self that wants to keep dragging us back into sin, into our old way of life. Lord, you showed the Israelites in the Red Sea that you were fighting for them. You did everything for them. You destroyed Pharaoh and his chariots. And Lord, you're showing us that in the waters of baptism, there's a mighty operation of your power to put the old man, the old self of sin to death and he is buried just as Pharaoh and his armies were buried in those waters, so you want to bury our old sinful life, our old sinful nature. God, we praise you for this glorious salvation journey that you have us on. And he who began a good work will certainly complete it for the day of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we continue on in this study, we know that you're going to be with us each step of the way, and you will complete what you have started in each one of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.